Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It is 8.30 on Wednesday, October 12th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the Mississippi River nears its lowest level in nearly a decade, we look at its effects on barge traffic. Then, banking in a cash-heavy, highly regulated medical cannabis industry. Plus, This week's History is Lunch looks at the legal system that allowed decades of violence against black Mississippians to go unpunished. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Weeks of dry conditions in the Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys are complicating shipping logistics along a major waterway. Experts believe the Mississippi River may soon reach its lowest levels in nearly a decade, and that's slowing down product shipping and travel. Some cargo and cruise ships have reportedly stopped as ports along the river are reporting idle barges and slow river traffic. Michael Carpenter is the senior port captain for Magnolia Marine Transport in Vicksburg, which moves liquid product on the river. He tells our Lacey Alexander with cargo loads scaled down, he can sum up the current situation in one word inefficiencies to to sum it up um inefficiencies brought on by the reduction in tow size because the the channel cannot support larger tow sizes uh also reduction in draft meaning it's going to take more equipment to move the same amount of cargoes because the channel cannot support uh, a deeper draft so with this certain situation, are there any certain types of shipments that can no longer come forward? Or like you say, do you guys just adapt to everything? Uh, liquid sector, we, we just adapt. We, we just have to adapt. No, no. like I said, now there's uh, – speaking for, for others in the industry, um, they preload their equipment. They preload their barges. And with these draft restrictions that have gone into effect um, – These commodities cannot be moved in the system because the channel can't support that heavy of a draft. So there's commodities currently set in port awaiting transit until we receive rainfall and or channel conditions improve, regardless of tow size. Gotcha. And forgive my ignorance, but can you elaborate on what a commodity is and maybe what that, like, includes? Commodity aggregate could be anything from... Uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, grains, anything perishable um, like that. Like I said, we, we work in the tank barge, the liquid sector, meaning 
lubes, asphalts, um, crude oils, uh, stuff like that. So at the load port, we can we can call for what draft that we need for our specific area of operation and adapt where others um, in the dry cargo industry, um, they, their barges are preloaded and they're, they are just uh, using their vessels for transport. You know, they'll just come into a fleet, pick up loads and transit to the next port where we're uh, working in the red flag industry. We handle it from cradle to grave. What we do is we arrive at the facility, we load the product on a series of barges from two to six to nine. We transit to the port. We discharge our entire tow, our commodity, back up the hill, and we come back out with the same barges that we arrived with. So another kind of ignorant question, but if the drought conditions in the river don't improve, what other changes could we see to the transport operations in your company? Further draft reductions. <laughs> yes, ma'am, we're in it for the long haul. Uh, but the further draft reductions means more inefficiencies in the operations, which would mean ultimately more equipment in a heavily congested system that we're currently seeing now. Um, you know, with a reduction of draft, meaning we're going to have to increase the, the number of barges and boats within our fleet to cover the same amount of work, um, which truly complicates matters all the way around. You know, you, you, you get into the manpower shortage, you get into the inefficiencies, you, you look at the exposure to yourself and your company with the addition of, of equipment, personnel, and um, into an already saturated system. That's a great segue into something else that I wanted to ask. The complications of the adaptations you guys are trying to make. Do you foresee any of that getting worse as uh, as this drought continues? Um, that's a complicated answer. That's really a complicated answer because uh, the river industry it somewhat goes in a cycle. Just like right now, we're at the at the height of the harvest season, which affects um, I don't know the percentage of of dry cargo carriers compared to liquid carriers, but for the dry cargo carriers, you're in the heart of the harvest season, which is their busiest time in the fall of the year, you know, getting the crops in, getting it to terminals, putting them on barges, and getting it to uh, the lower ports, you know, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, out, to, out for export. Consequently, uh, you know, oil, oil, oil's constant, you know, um, as long as we have automobiles that use gasoline, We'll use most of the product, or I'm sorry, we'll transport most of the products um, to terminals and to facilities uh, at, at customer requirements. Do these transport companies during these times of drought or during these times of rough waters, do you guys ever work together? Is there some kind of law or union in place where you can help out maybe a transport company that's struggling to get stuff through the Mississippi? Um, actions of a good seaman, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a... Uh, it's um, we regardless of um, what company you work for, um, you never want to see another mariner in distress. So we do in 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 the event of a grounding, you know we do rely on other mariners to assist in rectifying the situation. Industry really does a good job of coming together in times of need to facilitate traffic and keep everybody 
keep everybody working and moving. You know, it's it's not a competitive advantage at that point. I mean, because we're all human beings just trying to accomplish the same goal. Like I said, regardless of what color your boat or barge is, um, we're all trying to, you know, facilitate uh, vessel movement. And you honestly like to see everybody succeed. You know, you don't ever want to see your 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 competitor, you know, in, in some type of uh, dire situation. So obviously you said that your product is kind of powering through and you guys aren't really seeing any cancellation of transport. But as someone who works in this industry and is aware of other products that maybe are seeing a, a decline in transport, do you see this causing a product shortage somewhere in our state? Product shortage. I think I think your downfall would be the inability to get the product off existing equipment into the terminal for export. This affects all of us. Um, you know, like I said, this couldn't come at a worse time at the the um, onset of the harvest season. And, you know, not to get political, but, you know, some of this stuff is, is due for export, you know, to Europe, um, you know, with the conflict they currently have going on over there. Um, you know, this these exports were meant to kind of kind of feed the people of Europe, you know, the grain issue that they're currently having over there. So, so hopefully, you know, that this is a lot broader, a lot broader problem, um, you know, that we can somehow, uh, get our, get our minds and our, our heads around, to hopefully rectify this and get back to business as usual. Michael Carpenter, so, uh, port captain for Magnolia Marine Transport. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Coming up, banking and a cash-heavy, highly regulated medical cannabis industry. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. The cannabis industry, by and large, operates on a cash-only basis. Now, Mississippi's Medical Marijuana Association is partnering with a financial institution to make some banking services available in the state. MPB's Rhonda Dunaway reports. Businesses in Mississippi that dispense medical marijuana can do only cash transactions. That's because cannabis is still illegal at the federal level, and this means that federally insured banks are still locked out of the financial system. However, Abaca Bank, based in Arkansas, was founded specifically to help cannabis-related businesses. Brian Bauer of Abaca Bank says dispensaries in Mississippi now have options to legally transfer cash. We have solutions and strategies that help our customers, our retail clients, reduce physical cash on site by up to 50 percent. But then when those dispensaries go to make purchases, uh, you often see in markets these days uh, as they emerge that businesses are getting banked. 
and they are able to transact wholesale transactions, B2B transactions, electronically in the vast majority of cases. When Congress passed the Safe Banking Act in 2021, it provided protections for banking services to legitimate cannabis-related businesses. However, it did not provide that companies like Visa, MasterCard, and American Express open their doors to the cannabis industry. So you'll still end up most likely with a very cash-intense uh, you know, business, about 50 percent of those retailers, you know, will continue to transact in cash. The Mississippi cannabis industry is said to have product on shelves by November 1st. Rhonda Dunaway, MPB News. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch looks at the legal system that allowed decades of violence against black Mississippians to go unpunished. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Discover everything MPB Think and MPB Music Radio have to offer with just the sound of your own voice. Ask for the one you want by name. For news, great storytelling, humor, games, and more, say smart speaker, play MPB Think Radio. For musical selections, ranging from a dozen genres from classical to bluegrass, jazz to adult alternative, say smart speaker, play MPB Music Radio. Tuning in is easier than ever. Just ask for the one you want by name. Say smart speaker, play MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. If the legal system cannot protect someone from lynching, then isn't lynching the law? That's the question Margaret Burnham's research beckons. In By Hands Now Known, Burnham maps the criminal legal system of the mid-20th century, drawing lines from slavery to the legal structures of the time and through to the present. She's presenting this research today at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Burnham tells us it all began with a with compiling an extensive archive. We uh, developed the archive because we thought um, this history should be recovered uh, in as much as it was being lost. Uh, so the archive comprised of documents from uh, local law enforcement agencies, as well as the federal government, as well as the records uh, m- uh, maintained by the families who lost their loved ones to uh, violence. Here we're talking about homicidal violence, murders in effect, uh, during the period 1930 to 1954. So uh, we were uh, looking at this history and, and appreciating that much of it had not yet been captured and that the families who were affected by these events uh, had not had an opportunity uh, to place their histories in the context of the greater American story. And so that's what motivated the work, uh, seeking to preserve these, uh, these documents, uh, to put them in, to digitize them and make them more, more uh, easily available to researchers and to students and to the families and the general public, um, as well as to capture the memories of those who lived through these times uh, and who were who were, when we began this project in 2007, were aging. Uh, did your research take you, did it make any connections? Did it draw any lines 
to, to social structures, uh, legal structures, economic structures that, that preceded that period? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Michael. Uh, in one of the chapters in the book is about uh, kidnapping. And so what I describe here are a number of instances where individuals have essentially been ripped, you know, ripped away from their homes or from their places of work. Uh, and where uh, and with impunity, no charge made for kidnapping. I start this uh, chapter uh, with a story from uh, Natchez, where a gentleman was kidnapped from his home. Excuse me, uh, kidnapped from a jail, uh, taken to the woods, beaten, and then told to uh, get out of Mississippi. Uh, and he did get out of Mississippi. Went to Chicago. Eventually came back to Chicago. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him. Uh, at, at, in uh, in Natchez uh, a number of years ago. His name was Burl Jones. And there was really no trace of that um, kidnapping or beating. And I argue here, relative to your point, that this was uh, really a legacy uh, of slavery, um, that you could essentially uh, instruct, demand, command a black person uh, to go with you. And they really felt they had no choice. Uh, and so, so I argue that, first of all, the practice of kidnapping and whipping, uh, which was, you know, common clan practice back in these days in the 1940s, uh, is directly related uh, to the disciplinary practices of slavery. Uh, and that the failure of the law to criminalize these, this conduct is also uh, a legacy or a remnant of the notion um, that these uh, that the perpetrators of these crimes enjoyed a kind of immunity based on their skin color, which was white. The the question that kind of goes along with some of the promotional material uh, of this work is if the law cannot protect a person from lynching, then isn't lynching the law? Can you describe what about the the legal system um, that existed in this period protected white people from any repercussions uh, when it came to lynching? So, Mike, Michael, that's, a, that's another another complicated but really excellent question, and, and the answer is as well as complex. Uh, I uh, argue in the book that this was not just a function of local law enforcement practices uh, and the imprint of uh, you know uh, comprehensive white supremacy uh, re- uh, uh, reflected, for example, in the fact that African Americans here in Mississippi couldn't vote for their sheriff uh, or their mayor or their police chief. Uh, And therefore, uh, since they had no political power, uh, they weren't able to hold those folks to account uh, when they created, when they committed crimes against African-Americans. And it's also true that because white supremacy seeped into every institution uh, in our uh, politics at that time, uh, prosecutors couldn't win jury verdicts. The juries were mostly male, if not all male at that time, and certainly all white. Uh, and the uh, juries would, as they did in the famous Emmett Till case, uh, would simply throw these cases, would simply give these cases the back of their hand. And then at the federal level, um, the federal government, unfortunately, also took pretty much a hands-off uh, position for complex reasons that I describe in the book. Back to the book, uh, the title, By Hands Now Known. Where does that come from? Michael, uh Coroners were very prominent in the, the legal systems of the time. Uh, if, there were, if there was a death, the first person to examine it to determine whether legal process would uh, be ongoing was the coroner. These people were not legally trained. 
Um, they oftentimes not obviously not legally trained, but oftentimes also had no medical expertise. Uh, and, but it was up to them to decide uh, whether to uh, whether the prosecutor uh, should take a, a second look at the case and and pursue it. And uh, they whitewash these cases, uh, and oftentimes uh, their uh, jury, their verdict, the, the verdict of the coroner or the coroner's jury would be that the crime took place by hands not known. And you'd have that written across many of the death certificates that we secured. We have uh, a thousand death certificates in our archive. And so I argue here that investigation allows us to determine all of the hands um, that uh, essentially uh, created this reality for uh, Southern communities. Uh, not just the hands of the man who pulled the trigger or who um, secured the, the rope in a lynching case, uh, but as well the hands of the, the lawyers and the judges um, and, and the coroners and others uh, who participated uh, in uh, creating this, um, this uh, uh, legal environment uh, where essentially lynching became the law. During this conversation, we've talked a lot about um... – the legal environment, as you just mentioned, uh, the the legal structures, the social structures in place, uh, and in this work and in this conversation, you've 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 drawn a thread uh, that connects back to you know uh, antebellum practices of slavery, um, and uh, up through the the practice of lynching and how it was protected. Clearly, doing work that connects mid twentieth century structures. Uh, systemic structures with the past. So I, it begs the question, how do you respond to this recent resistance uh, to look at these things critically, to look at how past structures inform uh, current systemic issues? Uh, so thank you for that, uh, Michael. I, I uh, actually um, think that there is a a uh, a way to disrupt and interrupt and reverse um, these uh, old uh, practices, these, these historical um, practices uh, and, you know, modes of behavior. Uh, we haven't done it in our country, but other countries have done it. Uh, and, I, and in my book, I talk about the, what the Germans um, did uh, in order to address their, you know, their Nazi history during the uh, 1930s, 1940s. And what I, what I argue here. Uh, is that the, that the Germans have integrated into uh, every everyday life um, practices uh, a an understanding of the of the Holocaust. Um, so you can't walk down a street in Germany, in, excuse me, in um, in Berlin without stumbling across a, a stone that marks the place uh, where a Jewish family once lived and lost their lost their lives in the Holocaust. So. It's that kind of uh, remaking uh, and um, deep interrogation of history that is required in order to, to overcome it. And it's exactly that kind of interrogation um, that is that has been the subject of such protests, keeping books out of libraries, banning um, critical studies, um, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, as long as there's this deep resistance uh, to fully understanding and grappling with and confronting the past, uh, we'll really never get past it. Margaret Burnham, 
professor of law and director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University. Thank you so much for sharing this work with uh, with us. We really appreciate it. It's great to come back to Mississippi. I graduated from college here, Tougaloo College. Let me give a plug for Tougaloo College. And it's so wonderful to be back in this state. Thank you so much. Margaret Burnham will be presenting her research from By Hands Now Known at Today's History is Lunch, beginning at noon at the two Mississippi museums. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.